We're in Philippians chapter 4, and I'm going to read just a few verses. Philippians 4 and verses 10 to 13. And then, Lord willing, we'll finish the book of Philippians next week. All right, Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. This is going to be an unusual sermon this morning. I'm going to spend the majority of my time telling you an old Russian folk tale. Hopefully by the end of this story, you will be able to connect the dots and see exactly how this story relates to the passage from Philippians that I just read. The story is called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Uh, the story was written by Leo Tolstoy in the year 1886, although he didn't invent the story, he wrote it down and published it, but it was a folk tale being told for much longer than that. It, and even though it was written down in 1886 in Russia, it is still just as relevant in our context today. So here's the story. One day, a woman came from the city to visit her younger sister in the country. The sister from the city had married well. She married a merchant, and she was very well off living in the city. The younger sister had married a peasant and lived in relative poverty, although all of her basic human needs were met. The sisters got together, they drank tea, and they argued in a loving way about who was in a better situation. The older sister said it was much better the situation that she was living in. It's much better to live in luxury than to live in poverty. The younger sister said, well, I beg to disagree. With luxury and riches comes worry. You are always concerned with making more money. You're concerned about paying bills. You're always worried about acquiring new things. And you're also anxious about losing your money. Poor people have more simplicity and stability in their life, and therefore they have more peace of mind and more contentment. Also, she pointed out to her older sister that with wealth comes temptation. But the life of hard work in the country is simple and honest and good, and it's better. Now, during this whole conversation, the country sister's husband had been listening in from the kitchen. At this point, he came out and he said, I agree with every single thing that my wife has said except one thing. Our one problem, my one source of discontent is this, we don't own any land. If only we had land, then I would be happy. If only we had land, I wouldn't be afraid of anyone or anything. I wouldn't even be afraid of the devil himself. Well, unbeknownst to them all, the devil himself had been hiding behind the oven and listening in on this conversation. And the devil at that moment thought to himself, all right, 
all right, then you and I are going to have to fight it out. I'll give you your land, and I'll get you through your land. See, the peasants of this village, they leased their land every year from a kind and fair widow who lived nearby and who owned all the land. She owned 324 acres, and she leased them out every year to the peasants in the village. Eventually, though, she came to the conclusion that she was too old, uh, owning this land was too much hassle, and so she decided she'll be done with it and she'll just sell it. Now, rather than let this land go to someone else who might charge them even higher rent for it, the peasants decided that they would get together, pool their money, and buy it themselves. But when they met together to discuss this great idea, the devil stirred up strife and trouble amongst them. And they couldn't agree to the terms of this plan. They all went away angry at each other. And each farmer had to scrape together whatever he could to buy as much land as he was able. So this husband, uh, his name is Pakom, not Pako, Pakom. Uh, he, uh, he decided he was going to get as much land as he could. So he sold a colt, colt. he sold half their bees, he hired out his son to work, and he took all the wages that his son earned, and he even borrowed money from his brother-in-law, and he finally had enough for a down payment on 54 acres, which he bought, and he worked hard, and he was able to pay off his debt, both to the widow and to his brother-in-law. Now he owned this land outright, and he would ride over this land that he owned, and he would look around at this land that he owned as his land. And it brought him joy for a little while. But then he started noticing that other people liked to trespass on his land. It made him angry. And sometimes he noticed that his cows, whether purposefully or on accident, he didn't know. But they would let their cows onto his meadows. And occasionally, horses got into his cornfields, and it made him furious. He spoke angry words with his neighbors who didn't respect his property. But that only made them trespass even more. In fact, he ended up taking one neighbor to court. A friend of his took him to court, ended up losing both the court case and the friendship. One day, Pakom was sitting at home worrying about his land, not feeling happy at all. And a wandering peasant came along and told him about a place not very far from there where the land was better, it was more abundant, and it was cheaper. And right then and there, Pakom decided that that was where he needed to be. He could sell his land here, he could buy even more land there, and he could finally get away from these rude, jealous, obnoxious trespassing neighbors of his. And so that's what he did. He sold his land. He moved to this new place. He was able, with the money he made, he was able to buy 135 acres in this new place. He had three times as much land as he had before, and this land was fertile. And he could keep as much cattle as he wanted. And he enjoyed this. It made him happy for a little while. Until... 135 acres started to feel a little cramped to him. And so he began renting out land from others so that he could grow even more crops. 
But then he grew tired of throwing away his money leasing land. He wanted to own the land. And he began to fantasize about owning lots and lots and lots of land and having a huge house right in the middle of his property. And around that time, a wandering merchant showed up to his property and told him about a place quite far from here, a place where the people who live there are both lazy and stupid. And you can buy vast tracts of land from them at bargain prices because they have no idea the true value of land and they don't even care about it and they don't even work it and it's just yours for the taking. And Pockham thought, that sounds perfect. And he immediately sold his land and he traveled to this place. And when he got there, he found that it was just like the merchant said. There was plenty of good land there and the people weren't even using it. As soon as he arrived, the friendly people welcomed him and surrounded him and came out. And, and, and he had brought gifts with him to kind of soften them up. He gave them good tea and rugs for their houses. And they were delighted with his gifts. And they asked him, what brought you here to, to our land? And he explained, well, I came here because I'd like to buy some of your land from you. And they said, well, of course you can. There's plenty of land here for all. Just show us by your hand and indicate how much land you want. And as they were speaking, the chief of the community arrived and they explained to the chief what was happening. And the chief said, well, it can be done. It can be done. You can take what you please. There's plenty of land here. And Pakholm could hardly believe his good luck. And he said, all right, well, what's the price of land here? And he was expecting he was going to have to haggle and bargain and get a good deal. And the chief said, well, we just have one fixed price. The price for land is a thousand rubles a day. Pakum didn't understand. He said, what do you, what do you mean a day? How, how much land is a day? And the chief said, well, we sell land by the day. All the land that you can walk around in one day, that will be yours for a thousand rubles. Pakum said, I can walk around a lot of land in a day. And the chief laughed and he said, well, then it will be yours for a thousand rubles. But there is one stipulation if you don't come back within the day to the place where you started, then your money is forfeit and you get no land at all. Pakum was delighted with this. And so they agreed that the next morning before sunrise, they would meet at a particular spot and as soon as the sun came out, he could begin his journey. And as long as he was back, by the time the sun went down, he could have all the land that he encompassed. That night, Pakum was so excited he could hardly sleep thinking about all the land that was going to be his for a thousand rubles. Eventually, around dawn, he finally fell into a fitful sleep and as he slept, he had a nightmare. He saw the chief of the village laughing, holding his stomach and laughing hard. And when he approached the chief and asked, well, well why are you laughing? It seemed to him when he got closer that, wait a minute, it's not actually the chief. It's the merchant that told him to come to this place where the land was so cheap. But then when he approached the merchant, he realized, well, wait a minute, actually, it's the original peasant who had come to his place so long ago and convinced him to sell his land and move where he could buy more. And then he looked a little closer and he thought, w w wait a minute, th all three of those people are just wearing disguises, that was actually the devil himself. And then he looked, and at the feet of the devil, there was a dead man. 
Pakom looked more closely and he realized that it was Pakom himself who was lying dead at the feet of the devil. And then he woke up. And then he quickly put the dream out of his head and he hustled off to the spot where he had arranged to meet the chief. The whole village had come out that morning. The sun had not yet risen. It was still dark. The chief took off his hat, laid it on the ground. He said, here's where you start and here's where you must finish by the end of the day. Put your thousand rubles in this hat and all of this land is yours. Take what you desire. So Pakom took out his money. He put it in the hat. And just as the sun was just beginning to peek up over the horizon, he set off. He had a flask of water with him and a bag of bread, and he brought with him a hoe so that he could every now and then stop and dig a hole and mark the perimeter of his new land. After going about five kilometers in one direction, he began to get quite hot. The sun was all the way up now, and it was just... Blazing. It was a blazing hot day. And it was beating right down on him. And so he paused and he drank some water. Now his initial plan, he had come up with a plan last night before he went to sleep, is that he was going to walk five kilometers, make a left turn, walk five kilometers, make a left turn, go five and five more, and he would have a five kilometer by five kilometer square piece of property for himself. He thought that would be enough land and he thought that was an area that he could cover easily in a day. But now here he was five kilometers in and he felt good and the land looked good. And in fact, the land further on in the same direction looked even better. And so he decided to press on in the same direction before turning. The further he went, the better the land became. After going another five kilometers, he decided to pause and have another drink because now it was really, really quite hot. After that rest, he decided now he must, he must make his left turn, turn the corner and proceed to make the second side of his property. And so that's what he did. And after a while, it was midday. The sun was right overhead and just beating down on him like a hammer beating on an anvil. And so he stopped and he ate some bread and he drank some water. And after that, he felt much better. He found his strength again. And so he told himself, well, I know it's hot. I feel the heat. This is painful. This is uncomfortable. But I only have to endure the heat just a little while longer. And then I have my whole lifetime to enjoy this land. And so he kept going in that direction for a long time. He kept meaning to turn left. He kept telling himself he should turn left. But the land was so good. It was, it was low land. It was moist. It was black. It was fertile. And so he just kept walking a little further and a little further and a little further. And finally, he decided, I really should go no further. I am at the halfway point right now. I have just finished the second side of my property, but the day is more than halfway done, and I really need to head back. And so he dug a hole in the ground, and he rounded the second corner, and he said to himself, all right, I've made two long sides. I should cut this third one a little shorter in order to get back before sundown. And so he set off. Now the sun was starting to get a little low in the west. And he wasn't even halfway down the third side of his square. 
And so he decided at this point that he would just head straight back to the starting point from where he was, and he would just have to settle for a lopsided piece of land. And so he dug a little pit, and he headed straight line for his starting point. By now, I don't don't know if you can picture him, but he's just soaking wet, bathed in sweat, his clothes just clinging to him, his legs are all cut up and torn by the long grass that he's been walking through all day, and he begins to feel unsteady, and his head begins to spin. He wants to stop and rest. He knows he doesn't have time to stop and rest, and so he presses on, and in the back of his mind, he begins to wonder to himself if, in fact, he has made a terrible miscalculation. At this point, he can see, he can literally see with his eyes, the starting point is in front of him. But then off in the distance, he can also see that the sun is about to set. And so he has to quicken his pace. In fact, he starts to run. His his clothes are clinging to him. He's using his hoe as like a cane or a walking stick to support him. And he's kind of hobbling and and running at the same time. And, and, And his mouth is so dry. He ran out of water a long time ago. His mouth is just dusty. His lungs, they feel like, they feel like blacksmith's bellows just pumping. His heart is pounding like a hammer mill. And he begins to wonder if not only is he not going to make it back in time, but maybe he's going to die trying. And yet, he could not stop. It was unthinkable that he would give up all this land or forfeit his money. And so he ran on. And he saw in front of him the sun had nearly set. There was just a sliver of orange above the horizon, but he saw the, f- the hat in front of him with his money inside of it. And he saw the chief standing by the hat holding his belly and laughing a big belly laugh. And just then Pakom remembered his dream. And his legs gave out from under him when he remembered the dream and and he fell forward and his arms reached out and as he fell, he touched the cap. And the chief cried out, Good man! You now have a good piece of land! But from Pakom's mouth, blood poured and he lay there dead. And the members of the village took his hoe and they dug a hole just long enough to fit him in and they gave him that piece of land to keep seven feet by three feet, and they laid him to rest in it. That's the story, okay? Now, that story, which has been told for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, in Russia, that story is obviously a metaphor, a metaphor for how our earthly desires rob us of contentment, right? A metaphor for that feeling that we have of, well, just a little more. Just a little more, and then I'll be happy. It's just out of reach, but if I just had this, or if I just succeeded in that, if I just pulled this off, then everything would fall into place, and I would be happy. We chase after these things. They promise contentment to us, and when we reach them, they turn out to be a mirage, They turn out to have lied to us. They don't provide the satisfaction that they promise, and so we press on to the next thing. Well, 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 maybe this. In the case of Pakom, the peasant, his desire was for land, but as I said, that's a metaphor. It could be anything. 
It could be anything. So what is it for you? What is it that you desire? What is it that promises contentment to you but doesn't fulfill on the promise? Right? If you want to know the answer to that question, then ask yourself this. What is it that makes me discontent and upset when I don't get it? Is it, is it material things like Pockham in the story? Is it, is it money? Is it land? Is it nice things? Or, or, or is it something immaterial? Is it, is it the affirmation of others? Is it the respect of others? Is it success in your workplace or success in some other field? Or is it just security, a feeling of security? If I just had that, I would be secure. Or is it good health? None of those things that I just listed, none of them are bad. None of them are. They're all blessings. But none of those blessings will satisfy our deepest desires, and none of those blessings will provide lasting contentment. That's what Pacholm found out too late. And that is the opposite of the Apostle Paul's approach to life. According to Paul, there was nothing in this world that had power over him. There was nothing in this world that had power over the Apostle Paul. No circumstance had the ability to make him discontent. Think about that. No circumstance, nothing that could happen to Paul had the power to make him discontent. Not prison, not beatings, not hunger, not sleeplessness, not shipwrecks, not the betrayal of good friends. All those things happened to Paul in his lifetime, and none of those things caused him to be discontent. Nothing made him discontent. That's amazing. He says, I have learned in whatever situation that I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, of abundance and need. Indeed, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that last verse, that's the one we all know. That's the one that usually gets taken out of context and applied in sometimes very silly and trite ways. Right? It's, I've, I've heard that verse used to fire up sports teams, to get out there and win the big game, make the big tackle, make an interception, because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. I've heard that verse used to motivate businessmen and women to get out there and make the big deal because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Verse used to help the person on a diet not eat a piece of cake. It's a verse that's basically used in any circumstance for anyone who just needs a little motivational boost, right? I got this. I can do this. I can do all things because Christ strengthens me. It's important for us, though, to keep this verse in context and not pull it out of context Because this verse, in context, is more about our attitudes than our actions. Have you noticed that? It's not about making the big interception in the big football game. It's about our attitude, not what we do, but what we think. That's the miracle of this verse, that we can have an attitude of contentment in all circumstances. When Paul talks about doing all things through Christ who strengthens him, He's talking about the ability to rejoice always and to be content in all circumstances. Now, that is a superpower. And more accurately, that is a supernatural 
power. Christ has the power to enable us to be content in all circumstances. All right, well, what does contentment mean? Right? We need to make sure that we know what we're talking about here. So I'll give you a definition. This is from Jeremiah Burroughs in his excellent book entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I love this book. I've read it multiple times. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He says this. He defines contentment as this. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly actions in every circumstance. That's a long sentence. I'll read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly actions in every circumstance. The point here is not that we always understand why God does what he does or why God allows what he allows. We don't. We don't. We don't always know that. But we do recognize that nothing falls outside of his gracious and wise domain. And we can therefore be content in any circumstance knowing that he is our gracious Father who loves us, and we are his children who love him back. And even if we don't particularly love the circumstances that we find ourselves in, we really do believe that he is able to work all things together for good for those who love him. That's Romans eight twenty eight. When Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, that doesn't mean that he loves being hungry and needy. Nobody prefers being hungry and needy. But when he finds himself in those circumstances, for whatever reason, he is still content. He still has a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly actions. And how is he able to do that? Well, it's a secret, right? He says that. It's a secret. But it's an open secret, and he's willing to share it with us. Twice in this passage, he refers to this secret of contentment as something that he has learned. Learned. He learned it. That means it takes time. It takes time to learn things. I think what many of us want is the shortcut, right? Oh, there's a secret? Well, hit me with it, right? I want the secret to contentment. If I know the secret to contentment, well, then I'll be content in all circumstances, right? We want the benefit, without putting in the work, but Christian contentment is something that is learned over time. That was true for Paul, and it'll be true for us as well. Like, think of it like this. If, if there, a great golf coach could tell me exactly how to hit a perfect drive, I'm sure he could, and then I would know the secret, but in order to actually do it, that would take thousands and thousands of hours of practice, learning to apply in real life what I know in theory. Same with Christian contentment. Paul can tell us the secret. Paul does tell us the secret, but still it takes a lifetime of practice to apply in real life what we know in our heads. So what's the secret? Well, it's right there. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content in all circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. Christ is the secret. It's not self-discipline. 
It's not a strong will. It's not a stoic personality. It's not a particular diet. It's not a mantra that we recite over and over. It is Christ who strengthens and empowers us to be content in all circumstances. But knowing that, right, that's the secret. Now we know it. Great. That is good. But knowing that is different than living it out. Living it out means that we learn to lean into Christ and his presence and his power in our lives during life's little challenges and frustrations which come up on a daily basis and also during the deep valleys and storms of life that periodically come up as well. It means experiencing the peace of Christ when you're late for a meeting and you can't find your car keys because the last person to borrow your car didn't return them to the place where they belong. It means being content even when your faithful and sacrificial service is taken for granted and goes unacknowledged by others. It means having peace during even the hard years when the bank account is low and when things are tight and when the future feels uncertain. It means experiencing peace and trusting God even when Christianity is illegal and the church is being persecuted, which isn't at all our situation here, thank God, but it was Paul's situation when he wrote those words about being content in all circumstances. Is it easy to be content in those circumstances? No, it's really, really hard. But it's something we learn and that we grow at over time, just like Paul did. And so I'll close this morning with two verses from the Old Testament that sum up what Paul says here in the New. In Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8, it says, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. And it does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So how is it that a tree can bear fruit in the year of drought? Well, only if it's planted by water with roots that stretch out to the stream. And what sort of fruit does a tree like that bear during the drought? Well, it bears the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And what's the source of the water that nourishes the tree that enables that tree to bear that fruit? Well, here's what Jesus said. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the secret to contentment in all circumstances. Belief that Jesus is the Son of God, faith that he died and rose again to pay for our sins, and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit who is able to bear good fruit in us both in season and out of season even in seasons of drought. And what's the alternative to that? Well, laboring all day in the hot sun, trying to expand your territory, and hoping to find contentment in just a little more of the earthly things, and making your contentment dependent on your circumstances. That's no way to live, and we don't have to live that way. Christ is willing and able to empower us to find peace and joy in all circumstances. That was Paul's reality, and it can be ours as well. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these blessed verses and the promises they contain. Thank you that we don't need to be a slave to anything, not even to our circumstances. 
that nothing in this world can have power over us if we rest in the grace and peace that's ours in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn, to learn the secret of contentment in all circumstances. And I pray that when we find ourselves in circumstances that, that test us or tempt us to discontentment, that you would remind us. Remind us of your love, your power, your presence in our life and your provision for us. Remind us that you have given us a gift that can never, ever be taken away from us. And enable that to give us a deep and abiding contentment in you, Christ. Amen.